Leading the news for Thursday 30th of January, we bring you a story from a world worried about a viral epidemic and concerns in Australia about its spreading here. Dr Greswell of London, the newly appointed government sanitary engineer, has cabled to Mr Gillies in an answer to an inquiry made by the Premier as to whether the influenza epidemic, which has existed throughout Europe for the past few months, was likely to be transmitted to the colonies through the medium of letters or other mail matter. The inquiry was made at the instance of the Central Board of Health, which had under consideration the advisability, just as a precautionary measure, of causing ordinary letters and general mail matter arriving from Europe to be fumigated. Dr Greswell states that the germs of the disease may be transmitted through mails or other packages sent to the colonies. This report coming from the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, New South Wales, from Thursday 30th January 1890, this was the news. This Was The News is a fortnightly podcast that takes the news from this date many years ago and shares it with you in one news update. Straight out of newspapers from across Australia, I'm Broderick Matthews, here now for another reading of Old News. Today's news is coming from January 30 in the year 1890, and the world was concerned in the grip of an influenza epidemic at that time. Of course, Australia trying to protect themselves over here. But the other thing about Australia at that point was, of course, that we weren't a federated Australia. And this story comes from the Mackay Mercury in Queensland, talking about the Federation Conference. The Federation Conference will meet in Melbourne on the 6th of next month when Australia will take her first step towards eventually claiming the title of Ungran Nation. The step is a small one. It is only the preliminary to more serious action in the future. The first thing to be done is to decide on a basis upon which to build the structure of a federated Australasia. Everything favours the undertaking per se, but all the details involve considerations so serious to one or other of the colonies that unskillful pilotage would wreck the federal bark at the outset. Now the article continues on in this way with the pros and cons, but it goes on to say, With all the colonies embracing the one faith, no very great difficulty should be met with in applying the principle to the outside world only. Some interests will doubtless suffer at first, but the general result cannot fail to have the effect of stimulating industries planted in their natural soil, even if it involves the killing of those which have lived solely on the bounty of the people and not on the vitality derived from legitimate trade. Now, if you're wondering what that means, folks, it continues on to talk about uh, the sugar industry of New South Wales, which it says will suffer, but that of North Queensland will gain strength. But oranges in North Queensland may be seldom grown, but the fruits from the orchards along the Parramatta will find a ready market. The law of compensation will provide its own remedies for any ills arising out of the adoption of intercolonial free trade. That's right, we're looking at free trade across what were colony borders at the time and the abolition of border duties and uh, custom houses to to lessen the burden of taxation. And the article continues, It is as well to look all the facts in the face before we attempt to peer into the future. The conference which meets next month will have to do so, and we trust that the members of it will keep fully before them the varied interests with which they are called upon to deal. Interests not involving the importance of fostering some petty town, nor the pride place of a colony, 
but the welfare of a united Australasia. And with that dreamy ending to that story, let's turn the page now in the paper and head across the Tasman Sea. This story of the New Zealand anniversary comes by Electric Telegraph from Auckland on January 29, sent through by correspondent to the Brisbane Courier of Queensland. Today being the 50th anniversary of the acquisition of New Zealand by Her Majesty the Queen. And I interrupt there to note the word acquisition of New Zealand. Yes, this jubilee of the colony was celebrated with much enthusiasm in Auckland, the former capital of the colony. Lords Onslow and Carlington and Admiral Scott and other distinguished visitors participated in the public rejoicings. The city was gaily decorated, as also were the various ships of the British squadron, the Orlando, Opal and Lizard, and merchant ships in harbour. At an early hour, a procession comprising members of the various friendly societies, bands of hope, fire brigades, etc., paraded the principal streets and marched to Government House, where addresses were presented to the Governor from the City Council and other bodies. In his address, the Governor, His Excellency, stated that he had received a message from Her Majesty the Queen, containing Her Majesty's commands to offer her congratulations to the people of New Zealand on their 50th year of prosperity and good government, and her warm wishes for their continued welfare. The Secretary of State for the Colonies also telegraphed that it gave him much pleasure to convey congratulations on behalf of Her Majesty's Government on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the acquisition of New Zealand. His Excellency, in the course of his reply, congratulated the colony on its loyalty, its splendid prospects, the great increase in exports and the good feeling now existing between the two races. What a way to finish off that article there, the good feeling existing between the two races. But I find it an interesting comment considering that New Zealand no longer celebrates their anniversary day. It's celebrated regionally in Auckland, but instead the national holiday is now Waitangi Day, and that's been celebrated since 1934. Waitangi Day, of course, commemorating the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, which was signed by representatives acting on behalf of the British Crown and representatives acting on behalf of 45 Maori chiefs at the time. Today, this is still the National Day celebrated in New Zealand, and what a novel idea to celebrate a day when the nation came together as one, joining the Indigenous and invading populations. And on Indigenous population, let's turn the page again to a story back in Australia. This story of a strange and interesting discovery was reported in the Illawarra Mercury from Wollongong, New South Wales. A skull and a number of human bones were discovered last week on Bellamby Point by Mr Zoliner, a gentleman staying at the Queen's Hotel while out walking. When found, the upper portion of the skull was protruding from the sand. After removing the skull, Mr Zoliner searched for other portions of the human anatomy and found most of the larger limb bones and portions of the shoulder bones. The bones show signs of great age and exposure. The teeth in the skull were perfect, with the exception of one of the incisors which was missing and appeared to have been so for years, probably ever since the dissolution of the spirit from the body which may have taken place 50 or 60 years ago, judging from the appearance of the bones. All the teeth are rather well preserved and show no signs of decay before death. 
The aciferous enamel on the skull and accompanying bones has been entirely removed so that the remains are rather scaly and brittle. Of course, the discovery and the smack of sensation it carries with it has been a fruitful theme for conjectures, but from its manifest antiquity and from the formation of the cranium, its shallowness and narrowness and the soundness of the teeth, the supposition that those remains are those of an aborigine are the most acceptable. Right now in the article, I'd just like to point out that I'm reading this as it was written back in 1890, and I'm going to continue. All the incisor teeth have been lost since the discovery, but the molars remain intact. The fact that a single front tooth was missing when removed from the sand might argue in favour of the hypothesis that the remains are those of a black, as it is understood to have been a traditional custom amongst the blacks to knock out one of the front teeth as a mark of fellowship or a caste distinction, which was performed at a certain age and admitted the subject to certain rights and privileges. The remains are exhibited in the bar of the Queen's Hotel. Yes, that final paragraph certainly doesn't sit well with me now, especially the fact that the remains are exhibited in the bar. But of course, this is much better than the headline that appeared in the Australian Star, which said discovery of animal remains. On a slightly more positive note, Bellamby Point, which was where these bones were found, has now been recognised as an Indigenous site in New South Wales. I couldn't find any stories to say whether the bones were returned, but this naming of it as an Indigenous site uh, in 2012 means that it is recognised for its Aboriginal heritage and afforded some protections now. It's time for a short break from the news to hear some advertisements. Because the Waterbury is the cheapest timekeeper in the world, don't think it can be abused or is only a watch good enough for children. Treat it as you would one costing ten guineas. The power in a Waterbury is applied directly instead of being multiplied by an elaborate system of wheels. The spring is consequently a long one. Hence, we often hear the objection that it takes all day to wind. It does not take so long to wind as the time occupied in bunting up a threepenny piece for the Sunday collection plate. The habit can be readily formed of giving its stem a few turns every time you take it out, thus keeping it always wound with little effort. Don't expect the whole world for 13 shillings and sixpence. Don't forget that the Waterbury Watch Company don't claim to give you an 18 karat gold chronometer, split second stop movement with your name engraved on it and a gold chain chucked in for 13 shillings sixpence, but they do claim to give you a strong, accurate, reliable timekeeper for that money, and don't you forget it. Why remain deaf? If you have failed to be cured elsewhere, apply to Oral Clinic, 145 Collins Street, Melbourne. Their entirely new and successful electro-medication treatment completely cures deafness, noises in the head, discharges and more, no matter of how long-standing. Eardrums no longer necessary. Their electric head battery is the only one patented throughout the civilised world. Send for a pamphlet. Roderick Matthews here, and it's back to the news from January 30, 1890, with this story out of Burke of Robbery and Recovery, reported in the Australian Star from New South Wales. 
A man named Joseph Mullins has been charged and remanded at the police court with stealing a cheque drawn for £44.11, the property of a Mr A. Lonsdale. The accused, who was arrested at Byrock, had first denied the charge and all knowledge of the affair, but afterwards stated that he picked up the cheque on the road near the Currawina Hotel and cashed it at that place. A most peculiar feature in connection with this robbery is that on the accused's swag, when being searched by the police, a watch was found, which has been identified by Senior Sergeant Webb as his own property. It was stolen from him some little time back on the occasion of a man named Oliver, who was charged with horse-stealing, escaping from the custody of Constable Boone. The sergeant, in attempting to re-arrest this prisoner Oliver, threw his vest containing the watching question on the bank of the river, preparing to swim after Oliver. Someone, taking advantage of the general excitement, meanly purloined the watch, and no trace of it has been heard of till it was found in Mullen's swag. He'll shortly be further charged with larceny of the watch found in his possession. Over the page now and a couple of scientific stories reported in the Narracourt Herald from South Australia. A new explosive has just been produced from carbolic acid and is, of course, said to be more powerful than any hitherto discovered. Three charges of this explosive, so it is asserted, shot out of mortars will suffice to shatter to pieces a strongly constructed fort. It is by operations such as these that science tends eventually to exterminate war, for war, under conditions of absolute mutual destructiveness, becomes an impossibility. Yes, sometimes you wonder what they were thinking in 1890 when the thought of sheer force from a scientific explosive discovery was going to stop war, not uh, increase it. In another science story from the same newspaper, a noted physician, wishing to test the practical effect of mind disease, gave a hundred patients a dose of sweetened water. Fifteen minutes after, entering apparently in great excitement, he announced that he had by mistake given a powerful emetic, and preparations must be made accordingly. Eighty out of the hundred patients became thoroughly ill and exhibited the usual result of an emetic. Twenty were unaffected. The curious part of it is that, with very few exceptions, the 80 emeticized subjects were men, while the strong-minded few who were not to be caught with chaff were women. And finally, one more science story, this time coming from overseas and reported in the Western Australian record. The Holy Father, that is the Pope, desiring to make the new observatory at the Vatican as scientifically valuable as possible, has ordered an instrument of the latest invention for photographing the heavens, which is now being constructed under the auspices of the International Committee for the drawing up of the sky-charted Paris by the inventors themselves, the Brothers Eni, of the Paris Observatory. So there you go, science and religion can mix. We're going to take a short break now for some advertisements, and when we come back, the weather and a very strange letter. Come to the Strathmerton store. Having reopened near the railway station, PJ Stritch invites all his friends to inspect his stock, which from his knowledge of the requirements of the district will be found the most complete in all lines yet submitted to them. A war of prices has been waged and PJS is determined not to be outdone. Every article in the store is guaranteed of the best quality. No shoddy or rubbish kept. 
Highest price given for dairy, produce, hides and skins. Licence to sell poisons. Man's body, when tis stricken by disease, so surely will the mind be ill at ease. Dr Fred Homan, licentiate of the Medical Board of Victoria, may be consulted at his rooms at 155 Elizabeth Street, four doors down from Burke Street, Melbourne, on nervous debility, syphilitic, gonorrhea, skin and private disease. Dr Frederick Homan is a legally qualified and registered medical practitioner. The great success achieved by him speaks volumes in his favour. It is a success which is totally unprecedented, for by his unwearied researches into the subtle mysteries of the healing art, he has rescued thousands of his fellow creatures from being hurried in the bloom of youth to a premature and untimely grave. Welcome back to This Was The News. Reporting from January 30, 1890, it's time for the weather. This piece from the Evening News in Sydney, New South Wales. During the last few days, the heat has not, according to the thermometer, been very great, but the moisture in the atmosphere has made it very oppressive, although the thermometer has only registered from 80 to 83 degrees. This oppressiveness culminated on Wednesday evening in a storm of rain accompanied by strong gusts of wind. Meanwhile, this piece on the weather from the Telegraph in Queensland. Mr Rags warning. Yes, a special forecast this morning. Shipping officers are advised that an easterly gale is probable north from the Clarence River in connection with the tropical disturbance already forecast. That's from Clement L. Rag, government meteorologist. And finally, from the South Australian Register in Adelaide, January rains. A remarkable period of sultry weather has been followed in most parts of South Australia by an equally remarkable downpour of rain. For weeks past, the weather has been as oppressive as can well be imagined. The winds blew almost continuously from the interior, and yet they were clammy and muggy as well as warm. There was evidently moisture in the air, and those who had lived in the tropics could recognise that they were experiencing the worst kind of heat for which those portions of the Earth's surface are remarkable. It may be said further that the rains which have fallen during the past week present all the characteristics of tropical rains. So the weather on this day was certainly some oppressive tropical weather all round the country. Now a warning to listeners, before we cover the last story here, it does contain themes of suicide, so if that's not something you want to hear, you might want to stop the podcast now. At This Was The News, we try and read the news from the day as it happened, and this strange story caught my eye. Despite the distressing content, I thought I had to share. Entitled A Humorous Suicide... This story comes from the Brisbane Courier in Queensland. The following letter, which was found on William James Stubbs, a carpenter who committed suicide by shooting himself in the mouth in the Brighton train, was read by the Melbourne City Coroner, Dr Yule, at the inquest. To Dr Yule, City Coroner, My dear doctor, while still in the flesh, and ere my soul takes its flight from that frail tenement of clay, allow me, with all due respect, to the serious functions of your high and important office, to tender you my hearty congratulations on the businesslike and consistent manner in which you have for a considerable time performed the onerous duties of your office. 
I have not the pleasure of your personal acquaintance, and in anticipation I cannot but regret the fact that when we do meet, I shall have to occupy such an unconscious position in the interview, besides having to suffer the indignity of being sat on. However, dear doctor, I feel that you and the respectable company who may assist in the ceremony will do so with becoming respect and decorum. The question has been raised, is life worth living? Well, as the Yankee says, it all depends. Speaking for myself, I must say in many respects I've found it a jolly old world, and if I've had a goodly share of its ill luck, I've also had a fair share of its pleasures. Therefore, I think that I and this ancient planet may now cry quits. I dare say, Doctor, you find life on the whole pretty jolly. It's just possible that if I possessed your ability and the good fat screw attached to your office, I would not be in such a hurry to leave this sphere. However, we cannot all be city coroners, and even you at times encounter vexations. In conclusion, let me express the hope that your remaining years may be characterised with an abundance of the joys of life and few of its ill and that when your time of disunion arrives, it may be at a period of contented old age, unattended by violence, and in the orthodox manner, thus avoiding the necessity and unenviable notoriety of being sat upon. In prospect of an early meeting, I remain, with due respect, yours, in Carney. An interesting insight there, back into the time from 1890, in that news piece from the Brisbane Courier. If that story has brought up thoughts of suicide or similar with you, please call Lifeline in Australia on 131114. And with that, we close the newspaper on today. For January 30, 1890, this was the news. This Was The News is a podcast spoken and edited by Broderick Matthews. All source material is taken from the reference newspapers and found online through the National Library of Australia's Trove website. Links to each of the articles mentioned today can be found in the show notes. The theme music is from Beethoven's Symphony No. 6 and source under public domain from newsopen.org. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to subscribe and review on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcasting location. This Was The News can be followed on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and any email correspondence should be sent to thiswasthenews at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. The next episode will be out in a fortnight, released on Thursday 13 February. I'm Broderick Matthews and this was The News.